News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. Welcome back to FAQ. It's Professor Christina Greer here with Harry Siegel. Joining us first on this episode, it's the return of Ozzy Pabra here to tell us about reporting on Peter Parker of the Daily Bugle for his New York Today newsletter in the New York Times. Then we have a long talk with the amazing Alan Furr, taking us through the madness of the El Chapo trial and covering it there. And then we go over to Manhattan to talk Alec Baldwin and Harvey Weinstein with Victoria Bekempis. More action than you can get in 30 minutes. Let's get to it, true believers. Here's Ozzy on the phone calling from the Grey Lady's house. Hello, Ozzy. Uh, welcome back from, from your exile, print, <laughs> at some place, doing whatever. At a local family newspaper. Mm-hmm. What's happening with, uh, with, with uh, Spider-Man and who's living at his house now? So the thing that's happening with Spider-Man is that for many years, Spider-Man fans knew that he was given a real address in Forest Hills, uh, 20 Ingram Street. Uh, you can go there today. You can see the house. Real people live there. And This is Miles Morales, Peter Parker, Peter Parker. Oh, Who are we talking about? Uh, Peter Parker. So if you read the Marvel comics, at some point, somebody inserted a real address into the comic, which was 20 Ingram Street. And... It turns out, lo and behold, that living at the real address was a real family named Parker. It just was like a weird coincidence, which happens in the universe. And the Queen's Tribune discovered this sometime around, I think, 2001 or so. And it made for a really funny story. And what happened was, across the street was a family named Osborne. And as Spider-Man comic fans know, Osborne is the name of his arch rival, the Green Goblin. If you see the movies... You see Peter Parker and Osborne sort of challenging each other as young teens will always do uh, at some point. Well, but no, then no, that, that's Harry Osborne, who's the son of Norman Osborne, the original Green Goblin, and then picks yeah. up the mantle, just to be clear for our fan base. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Once an editor, always an editor. And it turns out that the Osborne lived across the street from the Parkers, and this mirrored what was happening in the comic books for years, and it was, like, really funny. So fast forward to today, we have Miles Morales... What makes you different is what makes you Spider-Man. A new Spider-Man, who's obviously not a Peter Parker character, but he picks up the mantle of being a Spider-Man. Notice that I said a Spider-Man and not the Spider-Man, because in this new iteration of the story, there are multiple people who who are Spider-Man. So this is the first Spider-Man movie to come out where the Spider-Man focal point of the story is located in Brooklyn. So they're moving the attention to a different borough away from 20 Ingram Street, away from Forest Hills. So I reached back out to the people who currently live where the Parkers and the Osbournes lived. Look at little Goblin Jr. And and it turns out very similar to what was happening in the movie was happening in real life. The Parkers no longer live at 20 Ingram Street and the Osbournes no longer live across the street. Both of the families were white. They've both been replaced. I think living in the in the house where Spider-Man uh, lived uh, is a Chinese family. And across the street in what was the Osborne house is a Korean family. So very similar to how Spider-Man is sort of changing and going through these demographic changes to better reflect the city, Spider-Man's old neighborhood is also changing to better reflect the city. And am I right that the uh, Korean family now in Spider-Man's old house thinks that it is, uh, it is wrong that Peter Parker is in Brooklyn? Yes, the, the Korean family who lives in the Osborne house which is across the street, 
the woman who I spoke to, the woman I spoke to, she sort of like laughed at the idea. She said, "Look, you know, like Brooklyn's gentrifying. You know, like if you're if you're moving someplace to be less white, like you know, and you pick Brooklyn, you're probably gonna have to change that in a couple of years." Which was really funny because that was probably the most authentic element of a New York story you could imagine. Right? Is how things change. They change. In, in not just one direction, but in many directions all at once, and it constantly evolves. So it, it, it was sort of a commentary about race and change and things happening in in New York. And comic book characters, and uh, an excuse to track down the uh, the, the park rats. Right, and it, it, it's just funny how how long the Parkers in the Osborns had lived in Forest Hills. It, it was for years, and. Now that Marvel is sort of catching up to reality, it almost wasn't a surprise that the neighborhood that was once that you would once think of placing, you know, a white character with a sort of, you know, white family and neighbors across the street and stuff, like that had to change and the and movie makers sort of realized it. And this was sort of art reflecting life and I was I guess just catching up to it. Ozzy, thank you so much. Uh, I'm sorry we retconned you out of the uh FAQ origin story and I, I wish you well at your uh <laughs> Uh, uh, your small paper you're working at, and, and I hope that uh, someday it makes a name for itself. I hope so, too, and I'm very much looking forward to the FAQ graphic novel. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's the Harry Siegel Superman origin story and the Chrissy Greer action-adventure movie comic book TV show that I'm sure is in the works. Thank you so much, man. And uh, um, listen, anyone who's listening to this who isn't subscribed to New York today, uh, you don't know shit about Spider-Man, and you would if you'd only sign up for this newsletter. So, uh, you know, shame is a valuable thing. Go do it. (laughs) Thanks. See you. My spider senses are starting to tingle. He is the world's most infamous and ruthless drug kingpin, and his federal trial in New York has produced one explosive revelation after another. El Chapo once asked Lopez to assassinate a cop. Him and his wife wore matching outfits uh, yesterday. Are you serious? They, they what wore, do they wear? They both Not wore, orange, did they? They both wore red velvet suits. Well, my take on the testimony is that the trial, which I once described as the trial of the century, is really becoming kind of the soap opera, soap opera, soap Has there ever been a a trial like this before in your experience? I have been covering trials on and off for 20 years. I have never seen a trial like this. I've covered mob trials. I've covered terror trials. This is beyond the beyond. It's completely unique as far as my experience goes. No, never seen anything like it. So how is the uh, prosecution doing as they get ready to uh, to close their case? I mean, the prosecution has just buried Chapo in a mountain of evidence that includes everything from detailed drug ledgers from his operation with entries for electricity bills at his warehouses, you know, um, you know payments to uh, Sicarios, i.e. hitmen, to literally the other day, they had a they showed a ledger that had an entry for Chinese food. Um, you know, there's um, there's just there's there's a there's a veritable gold mine of intercepted phone calls and text messages that that they've gotten from two separate federal investigations into Chapo 
one uh, in which his IP guy was turned against him and the other in which a regional office of Homeland Security Investigations in Nogales, Arizona, cracked into Chapo's cartel's uh, BlackBerry network. And then, of course, we've had what is now more than a dozen um, cooperating witnesses from within or around the cartel itself, everyone from Chapo's main American distributors um, to his uh, chief co uh, chief Colombian cocaine supplier, to you know his personal secretary when he was on the lamb in the mountains of Sinaloa, uh, to the IT guy himself, to most recently uh, one of his mistresses who he was employing in the drug operation itself. It's just it's just an astonishing presentation by the prosecution um, that has been working on this case really you know, for more than a decade, uh, you know, it's so, it, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling, the evidence that they have. And today, uh, Chapo and his wife were matching outfits while Lozniskus testified. Is that right? It was astonishing, Harry. Um, so, as I said, the mistress was on the stand today. Uh, she started her testimony last week in which she described the absolutely bonkers scene of being in bed with Chapo as a tactical team of Mexican Marines took a battering ram to the front door of their safe house and Chapo, naked, hopped out of bed, ran into the bathroom, beckoned her to follow him, popped the top on his escape hatch, which was a, uh, a <laughs> hidden underneath his bathtub was a tunnel leading to a set of wooden stairs leading to the sewer system of Culiacan, Mexico. So the mistress, um, in tears at times, described that scene last week and a bit of her relationship with Chapo. And in the courtroom, as all of this was being described, was Emma Coronel Espero, Chapo's wife. So to say the least, the dynamic there was a little awkward. And today, Chapo and his wife took what seemed to be a symbolic form of revenge against the mistress, and as she sat on the witness stand dressed in her drab prison clothes, they showed up together in the courtroom wearing matching burgundy velvet smoking jackets. <laughs> it was just insane. Um, and the message seemed very clear, which is we are together wearing the color of royalty, you are nothing and alone wearing prison clothes. It was just it was just so blatantly obvious. Man, oh man, wow. So speaking of uh bonkers scenes, yeah. Was was uh, Guzman writing a script about <clears throat> Guzman? So there was testimony from uh, from Chapo's personal secretary, a Colombian trafficker named Alex Fuentes, last week, that while he was on the run in one of his various uh, hideaways deep in the Sierra Madre Mountains, he indeed hatched a plan to do a vanity movie project about himself. He was going to direct this movie. And the way that they were going to get this movie made is, as many movies are, it was going to be based on a book. 
So he set about to work on a book about himself in order to turn it into a film project. He went so far as to hire a producer from Columbia who sat down to conduct interviews with Chapo and various members of his family. Now, that draft copy of the book apparently still exists. It seems to be in the hands of the federal government. Uh, as far as I know, it's never been taken, but Chapo's biography is out there somewhere. So do we have any sense from the testimony of how uh, Chapo was going to tell the, uh, uh, you know, the El Chapo story? We don't. We do know that he seemed, to, uh, he seemed to like tall tales. The tall tales about men doing big things in a big country. So the guy who related all of this to the jury, Alex Fuentes, was at one of these story meetings with Chapo and the Colombian producer, and he recounted how Chapo was spinning tales out of his own history to the producer so as to place them in this movie. One of the tales was, you know, Chapo is, by Chapo's own account, once raided by the Mexican military, and the soldiers come in, they grab him, and they take rifle butts to his hands with such ferocity that they, like, break all the bones in his hands. And then, according to Chapo, they tie a rope around his ankles. They tie that end of the other end of the rope to the bottom of a helicopter, and they start to fly him upside down in the helicopter. Now, this sounds pretty Hollywood to me, but this is, this is what Sefuentes told the jury. He heard Chapo telling the producer for the movie project. And Sefuentes is the uh, same witness who said that, uh, that, that Guzman had given $100 million to the uh, to be then president of Mexico, is that right? That is correct. That was part of his bombshell testimony last week. Uh, he related how Chapo gave $100 million to then president um, Enrique Peña Nieto, and apparently $100 million was just the uh, negotiated deal. According to Fuentes, uh, Chapo had told him that Peña Nieto went to Chapo just before he was about to take over the Mexican uh, presidency and asked for $250 million. <laughs> and Chapo bargained him down to, you know, a mere $100 million. So I want to ask you about secrecy in this trial, but before we go there, can you just sort of sketch out how uh, security is working here, um, what, what's happening with the bridge in the courthouse and, and, and for the jurors in the midst of this, and what it means for you and, and the rest of the press corps reporting there every day? Yeah, of course. Um, the security at the trial is extremely tight. Like I said, I've covered mob trials. I've covered terror trials. I've never seen anything like this before. They have the usual setup. You walk into the courthouse, you know, you pass through uh, uh, one metal detector. But then, of course, they have another metal detector on the eighth floor where the courtroom where the trial is being heard um, is all set up. On top of that, they have, uh, you know, a sniper team from the NYPD uh, emergency services unit deployed to the area. You see them walking around the courthouse with their, you know, long guns and bags. Um, they have a team of drugs, uh, bomb-sniffing dogs, uh, at least two or three on any given day, who are patrolling not just the courthouse at, and the uh, floor of where, you know, where the court is, but they're in the bathrooms. They're just going up and down everywhere. And then, I've never seen this before, <clears throat> they also have um, U.S. Marshals with radiation sensors, like sticking them into, uh, you know, trash cans, uh, just walking around making sure there's no kind of, like, dirty bomb or something. Um, and indeed, as he mentioned, uh, when Chapo was coming 
two court in Brooklyn. It's in it's in Brooklyn Heights, the courthouse, from his uh, jail cell in the federal jail in Lower Manhattan. It required passing over the Brooklyn Bridge, and so before the trial. What would happen is they, the police would shut down the entire Brooklyn Bridge while a, uh, a motorcade of police vehicles, armored cars, and ambulances passed across it. But it was decided that that would create a complete traffic nightmare should Chapo during the trial need to be uh, ferried back and forth, not only you know at what was the morning rush hour, but what, you know at the end of the day would be the evening rush hour. So they've made... Um, other secret arrangements that um, are not discussable uh, on your podcast uh, to house Chapo during the trial. On the weekends, he goes back to what uh, it's called the Metropolitan Correctional Center, the MCC in Lower Manhattan, and they do shut the bridge, taking him back and forth. But they 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 got rid of that for the trial proper because just you can imagine like like what a mess that would be shutting the bridge twice a day. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the you know what that's meant for all of us. It you know it it means that you know due to the security measures, due to the intense media attention, and the number of people who are showing up every day, not just reporters, all mind you, uh, uh, I'll, I'll say, but you know like w- w- what can only be described as narco tourists. You know, dozens of them are showing up. I've you know people who have like flown in for the day from their job in a paper mill in Wisconsin, people who have come in from Dallas, people who have come in from Denver. There was a family uh, just today, a father, mother, two relatively young girls, like, you know, in their tweens, um, who were there for their second day. You know, they had, gone, they had come once and then they had come back. It means that we all have to get there, generally speaking, around 6 a.m., between 6 and 6.30, in order to be assured a seat inside the courtroom. So the $100 million question here, if you will, may be, like, why is he being tried here, and how did he end up here? That's a good question. Yeah. committed mostly in Mexico. Right. So obviously, you know, the baseline on that is that even though his crimes were hatched and executed in Mexico, the drugs, the ultimate target of the Sinaloa drug cartel, which he's, you know, said to have led, is getting drugs across the border into the United States. So before Chapo's extradition in January of 2017, he was already under indictment in six separate federal judicial districts across the country, Uh, Brooklyn, New York, San Diego, El Paso, Chicago, and um, you put me on the spot, Uh, one other one. I'll come to me in a second. And so, you know, some of those cases went back to the early 2000s. Um, Brooklyn's case, which was filed originally in 2009, was, for various reasons, decided to be the strongest. One of those reasons may indeed have been that the Attorney General at the time, and I'm talking about the United States Attorney General at the time, was Loretta Lynch, who in her previous life had been the United States Attorney in Brooklyn. The the real important point here is that there's not just one case against El Chapo. What there are 
is a series of different cases that have essentially been sewn together into a kind of patchwork quilt in which elements from each of these cases has been drawn out and made into what's really a master case. And that's kind of reflected in the prosecution team itself. Miami was the last one. Um, so there are, uh, there are federal prosecutors on the prosecution team from Brooklyn, Miami, and from Maine Justice's Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs Division in Washington. And it's really this kind of unique collaborative effort on the prosecution side. Um, and they have drawn upon the remarkable work of a variety of law enforcement agencies that have been investigating Chapo for years. So you have part of this case that was made by the FBI. You have part of this case that was made by the Drug Enforcement Administration. You have part of this case that was made you know, by this small regional office in Nogales, Arizona, of Homeland Security Investigations, as I mentioned. They're the ones who cracked into the blackberries. So it's just, it's an astonishingly broad, huge case that has then been kind of like cobbled together in this weird collage. Um, it's and it's all Nieto. being, what's who's that? It's Nieto who's supposed to have, who, who brought Chapo here and after he escaped twice from from Mexican prisons, right? Correct. Um, so, so this is this is new. I, uh, so I, I have sort of some understanding of the, the the background dynamics, but but how do you end up with a uh, with an international criminal getting tried here and and you know sort of forcibly brought here in this sort of case? Because that hasn't happened with other uh, uh, drug kingpins. Well, uh, look, there, there, and, there, and what are the risks of that if there are any? You know, look, I mean, there's a couple of things going on here. Um, you know, Chapo is not just a drug trafficker. Right. He he is an escape artist um, and that is part of his myth and that's part of his legend. And so after he twice escaped from prison, once in a laundry cart, the other time in the tunnel that was literally dug into the bottom of the shower of his cell, the, the United States government was like, all right, Mexico, like enough. You know, we need you need to send this guy to us. This can't keep happening. Um, and so the, his extradition took about a year. <clears throat> it was hard fought. Uh, Peña Nieto indeed eventually um, acquiesced and sent him here. But it was because the Mexican government itself was having a hard time just holding on to this guy. And so, like, what are the risks? Well, obviously, Chapo is not the only narco trafficker who has been extradited. In fact, all of the witnesses who have testified against him are narco traffickers who have been extradited, right? And so <laughs> it's created this really weird tension um, between the federal government and foreign governments in which if you're a federal prosecutor whose job it is to uh, prosecute drug lords, imagine how difficult it is prevailing upon a foreign government to extradite someone to the United States when that narco lord might indeed take the stand, and as Alex Fuentes did, stand up and say, oh, by the way, I participated, you know, and knew about the the wholesale bribery of the very officials who agreed to extradite me here. So it's it's created a weird tension in which our government, our federal prosecutors, have decided that oftentimes secrecy, um, you know, is the best way to go. So they've really, the secrecy, to get back to what you asked before, has just been really, really unprecedented in this case. I've never seen <clears throat> so many sealed memos, so many redacted memos, both pre-trial and during trial. 
Um, you know, there was a point when the judge in the case would hold sidebar conferences with the various parties, and the subsequent to the sidebar conference would would um, preemptively seal that transcript, so you wouldn't even know what was discussed, you know, out of earshot in in in, in open court. Um, and there's just a real, you know, the government recently filed a, a memo under seal. The judge finally has started to force the government to unseal some of the stuff. And the federal prosecutors just wrote in, in plain black and white that the reason why they're concerned about all of this uh, testimony coming out about foreign governments is because they don't want to damage diplomatic relationships with Colombia and Mexico. It's really kind of that simple. Um and in some ways, you know, there's the short-term gain of getting some narco lord's extradition to the United States. But if the price of that extradition is to keep secret and to keep under wraps the corruption that surrounds all of this, you know, I wonder if it's a long-term destructive effect. You know, maybe we don't get the extradition, but we call out the corruption that enables the the cancer of narco trafficking to begin with. You know what I mean? I do. So, so I'm thinking now about um, about the criminal complaint that the Southern <clears throat> had and just put out against uh, uh, Natalia Vesonetskaya. Right? Which seems like who was who the, the lawyer who's at the Trump Tower meeting was involved in this other case there, but like it seemed like they know she's not coming back to the U.S., or, or the, the, there's a very off chance that happens if there's any criminal case. And this is the way right. of actually getting your receipts and like putting information out there about, uh, about bad people and from, from the, the investigations you've done. And the way you're describing this, it seems like the reverse. Like to get Chapo, they're, they're, they're sort of holding their cards about all this other information and bad actors who, who they're aware of. Is that, is that a fair yeah. way to say? It is, and there's so so. For example, there's a fascinating story yet to be told surrounding the alleged bribe to Peña Nieto. It goes like this: the way it seems that Chapo got the money to Peña Nieto, and I'm referring here to 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 cr- the cross examination of this Colombian guy, Alex Fuentes, who brought this all out to begin with. Chapo's lawyers start asking Alex Fuentes. Tell me a little bit about the relationship between your, Alex's personal assistant, a young woman named Andrea Velez Fernandez, and a political consultant who works on Peña Nieto's campaign called J.J. Rendon, right? And so Alex says, well, Andrea worked for J.J. Rendon, and one day, kind of around the time of the campaign, Andrea sent me, uh, texted me photographs of suitcases filled with cash, Right? And so the defense lawyers were like, oh, were those suitcases uh, perhaps in the photographs on J.J. Rendon's airplane? Alex Cifuentes pauses. He's not sure about that. The defense uh, then goes on to ask uh, Cifuentes, were those suitcases full of cash destined for Peña Nieto? The government objects. The judge sustains the objection. We never hear anything more about the suitcases full of cash. And the weirdest part of the whole thing is that this young woman at the center of this mystery, Andrea uh, Velez, is herself a government witness. She was charged. She pleaded guilty. 
but she was never called to testify at the trial. Why? Well, perhaps because she is she she is in possession of some pretty damaging information about the collaboration between drug traffickers, a big-time political consultant who worked on Peña Nieto's campaign, and the former president of Mexico himself. It's just bonkers. That that is indeed bonkers. Um, when we turn toward the uh, defense for a minute, sure. I, I I have just been I've been following a little bit of the the, the headlines about um, <clears throat> Chapo's lawyer Jeffrey Whitman. We've just sprawling wildly different tabloid uh, directions that, that that are all interesting. Um, can you talk about his style as a lawyer? Um, whether or not he may be going to also represent uh, Harvey Weinstein? Yeah. So so I mean, look. Position I'm in sorry, the press these days. Yeah, I mean, Lickman is a notorious pit bull. He is very aggressive. He's incredibly bright. He's incredibly quick on his feet. And really, there is no defense for this case. I mean, the evidence is just so overwhelming. There's no way to defend it. But given the fact that there are so many cooperating witnesses and given the fact that Lickman made his bones as a mafia lawyer, kind of most famously represented John Gotti Jr., um, he knows how to attack cooperating witnesses. And he's really, you know, the other two lawyers have a much gentler style. They're very good, both of them. Uh, it's got one guy named Bill Papur, another guy named Eduardo Balareso. They're, they're great lawyers. But Lickman is just vicious. And so he has spent his time, when he gets to cross-examine um, witnesses, just, just savaging these people. And the fact is, they're all horrific human beings, right? All of the witnesses who have testified, with perhaps the you know, exception of the mistress, are just they're just kind of terrible people. So um, you know, so that's Lichtman. And, you know, whether or not this is all going to be successful in the end is, you know, it's in doubt. I think it's virtually assured that Chapo is going to be convicted. Um, you know, the defense uh, is going to uh, get its chance probably early next week. The prosecution is scheduled to rest either at the end of this week or at the very, very beginning of next week. And then we will see what kind of defense case Chapo mounts. We do know <clears throat> that his lawyers have uh, subpoenaed an unidentified person from prison. testify. They, they issued a habeas writ. They're going to haul someone out of prison and put them on the witness stand. We don't know who that person is. And then there is at least the possibility that Chapo himself might testify. Okay. But st stop there for a second. I, I, I cannot think of any parallel with, the, with, with a uh, <clears throat> criminal, a kingpin at that level, uh, testifying in their own defense, like are his lawyers telling him to do this? Is is it because the case seems seems so lost? And, and what could he say, given everything that, that's come out already, if that were to happen? So, to answer your first question first, no, there is no precedent for this. There, as far as I can tell, there has never been a criminal of Chapo stature that has ever taken the, the the stand in his own defense. And I'm talking about everyone from John Gotti to Al Capone. It's never happened before. Are his what is what do his lawyers think? His lawyers are desperately trying to argue him out of this. But they're not 100% successful yet. He wants to testify. And I can give you a few reasons why it makes sense that the unthinkable could indeed happen. 
One, the guy's got nothing to lose, right? He's buried. He's toast. He's done. So why not tell his story? Two, he loves publicity. Don't forget, this is a guy who gave an interview to Sean Penn. I know that, dude. Three, he absolutely has something to say. Kind of what he told Sean Penn, which is, I, I, can, I can envision Chapo getting up in the witness stand and saying, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I am a drug dealer. Why am I a drug dealer? Because you people can't stop doing drugs, right? Don't forget, the minute this guy gets convicted, he's going to the, um, to the, to the Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, and he will never, ever be heard from again. So this is really his last chance. And then in some ways, he spent the last 10 weeks watching like virtually everyone he's ever worked with get up on the witness stand and tell his story for him. So at what stage does he not want to take control of his own story and just do it himself? Mind you, he also is never going to get a public platform as big as the one he's got now. So why not? Now, I remain skeptical, but hopeful. But, you know, like I could see it at this point. So does he have any English at this point? I, I seem to recall from the Sean Penn craziness that, that, that uh, he did not and, and that the Penn had a translator. He doesn't. No, I don't think he does. But don't forget, I, I mean, almost every, almost every cartel witness in this trial so far has, has uh, testified through a translator. So, you know, if, if he does take the stand, it's not a big deal. I mean, it'll be wild. And I can only imagine, you know, not only what his own lawyers will, will, will ask him, kind of take me through your hard scrabble biography, take me through your views on drug trafficking. But then, of course, he's going to have to sit under cross-examination by federal prosecutors who have been working on this case, you know, in some, in, in, in some of these indictments back to like 2004. So it's going to be it's just it's going to be wild if 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 that happens. And do you have any sense of how much latitude? I know this is ifs on top of ifs. <clears throat> the uh, judge might give him from how the uh, the trial has gone so far. In terms of in terms of testifying. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of in terms of as, as you're describing it, potentially, uh, you know, monologuing or offering the the, the case for why. Look, I you know I think that. Um, you know the judge has has kept has, has run a pretty tight ship, so I think that if Chapo gets up on the witness stand, should that happen, and starts to kind of pontificate, and you know, and starts to just sort of get ideological or or you know or get sentimental, the judge might might you know pare it back. In fact, I've never seen a case in which the uh, judge has shut down the defense lawyer's opening arguments, as he did in this one. Um, nor have I seen a case where the prosecution, subsequent to the, to the defense's opening statement, filed a formal motion to have the opening arguments stricken from the record, as this case had. So, I mean, Real we'll quick, see, can you just say you what know. the defense's opening argument was, or, or, yeah. so, or started to be? So... The defense essentially for the two years of Chapo's uh, that that were that lay between Chapo's extradition and the beginning of the trial, the defense had virtually given no hint of how it was going to attempt to you know persuade the jury that their client was innocent, and then all of a sudden 
on the first day of the trial, Lichtman stands up in front of the jury and he starts spinning this vast conspiracy in which Chapo's main partner, a guy named Ismael Mayo Zambada Garcia, had been in league for decades with both crooked American drug agents and a hopelessly corrupt Mexican government to frame El Chapo for being the leader of the Sinaloa drug cartel, when in fact it was he himself, Mayo Zambada, who was the real mastermind behind the cartel. Now, there is some truth to this. The Mexican government is hopelessly corrupt. Mayo Zambada has never once in his 40-odd years as a drug trafficker, maybe 50-odd years as a drug trafficker, been arrested, whereas Chapo has been since 1993, either in prison or on the run the entire time. In fact, everyone who's ever worked with Mayo Zambada has either ended up dead or in prison. So, so there's some, there are a couple data points to work with there, but the idea that there was this vast conspiracy between, you know, the real biggest drug dealer in the world, the DEA, you know, and, and the Mexican government was such a stretch that the judge uh, shut it down, the prosecution objected, and, um, you know, the jury was left kind of scratching their heads. So, Alan, last two quick things for you, and thank you for taking the time. Two and a half. So so how much sleep are you getting? What time are you getting up? Like, what, what's your day like right now? I usually get up around 4.30 or 5. Um, I check the docket. Oftentimes there's an overnight filing. Um, walk the dog. Uh, have a little breakfast. Get out the door by about 6. At the courthouse uh, by 6.15, 6.30. You know, run down on the morning break, lunch, and the afternoon break. Just do kind of, I've started doing like live tweets of the trial on these breaks. Which, which, uh, you're not what's following, that? which listeners, if you're not following, this is, uh, this is the most entertaining, jaw-dropping day after day. Like, what just happened? Yeah, I uh, mean, that's the way I feel. On Twitter. <laughs> and, then, and, then I, and then the court lets out at 4.30. I write from 4.30 to 7, maybe, 6.30, 7. Get edited, and I'm usually home by... Eight or so, eight eight thirty, you know, and uh, you know, walk the dog, have a bunch of whiskey, and go to sleep. <laughs> Repeat. <laughs> and what do you know about El Chapo, or, and what did we learn that we didn't know when the trial began? And, oh, and what, God. anything that happened here that, that you just really didn't see coming? That that that, that uh, what is this? <sighs> I think that one of the most amazing things to me, just on a sort of personal character logical level, is the way that he is incredibly he's a he's a serial philanderer who is also intensely paranoid about his lovers and obsessively spies upon them. And we've heard that this went back to the nineteen nineties. Um, you know, when his means of spying on his girlfriends and mistresses and wives was literally by getting like wiretap equipment and tapping into their phones. But now, of course, with the technology, um, he had his his 20-something Colombian tech guy install commercial spyware on the phones of both 
Emma, his wife, and his mistresses, uh, including the one who was on the witness stand today. And then that was his own lust and paranoia were leveraged against him when the IT guy flipped, became an FBI informant, and gave the passwords to the spyware accounts to the federal government so that they could read the intimate text messages between Chapo, his wives, and his girlfriends. I mean, that was just mind-blowing. Wow. He could write a script off that. It's just bonkers. So it's a bit after nine now. I'm going to let you get to uh, whiskey and sleep, but thank you so much for uh, taking the time to go through this, and, and uh, I hope we'll talk again when we, uh, we come to the end of this trial. You I'd love to, Harry. Okay. I'd love to. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good night. All right. Have a good night. Centauri. Alrighty. Hi, Victoria. Hey, how are you today? Uh, fantastic. So, <laughs> I'm a little curious. Where are you coming from today? Something with our dear friend Alec Baldwin? Yes, uh, I was uh, just coming from uh, Manhattan Criminal Court where Alec Baldwin appeared um, for his parking dispute alleged assault harassment case. Um, so back – it's, it's, it's an interesting tale. Uh, back in November on the 2nd, he was arrested um, for allegedly punching a guy over a parking spot. And then he appeared in court about a month later and we found out a couple of things. He was facing uh, assault, misdemeanor and a harassment violation. So nothing, nothing major. But the best part I think of that yeah, – after court that day was he um, supposedly – called the guy uh, punched an asshole to cops after the fact. <laughs> so fast forwarding, he had initially maintained his innocence, but today in court, um, he pleaded guilty to um, second degree harassment, which is a violation. Okay. And he's not going to have a record if he completes the court ordered community service. Okay, so Victoria, um, an update on the Weinstein case. We hear that there's something new with his legal team. Yes. Um, so we actually just got word today, Wednesday, that um, new lawyers are going to be coming on to Harvey Weinstein's case. We knew that this was coming because Ben Brofman and Weinstein announced their split last week. But the the new lawyers, uh, it's a pretty high-profile team. Um, it includes Jose Baez. He famously represented Casey Anthony, uh, who had stood accused of killing her two-year-old daughter. She was acquitted. Um, the other attorneys on the team are you know, equally well-known, um, including Harvard law professor Ronald Sullivan. Um, he worked on one of uh, former New England patriot Aaron Hernandez's cases and also um, the attorney who represented Kobe Bryant uh, following a sexual assault allegation. Her name is Pamela Robillard Mackey. So we've got a lot of big names on this team. And, you know, it, it will be interesting to see how this plays out. There had been unconfirmed rumors that Weinstein, you know, didn't want Braffman around anymore and, and or vice versa again, you know, because both have very big personalities. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, I haven't met these other attorneys. I don't know what they're like personality-wise. But, um, you know, it is going to be interesting to see whether, you know, any more tension is is going to remain, you know, between 
uh, a defendant who's a very big personality and three very, very well-known lawyers um, who are used to big press cases. FAQ NYC is supported by a grant from Civil, a blockchain company aiming to reshape the business of news and by listeners like you. We recorded this week at the McSilver Institute, where we're headquartered. That's the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU. A special thank you goes out to our former co-host and now New York Times Today reporter, Ozzie Pabra, and also Alan Furrer of the New York Times. And a special thank you to our producer, Jordan Gosperay, and assistant producer, Samantha Gatzek. And shout out to Adam Kamara, who set up the equipment at Silver and is mixing the show this week. And a special thank you also to Victoria Bekempis, who hung out in the Manhattan courts as well. Remember, if you have to ask, tune into the FAC for some answers. Review us on iTunes and reach us on social media to discuss it all. 